Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm thrilled you're listening in today. We're going to be talking about a pretty intense topic, so I hope none of you get offended. I hope it'll be enlightening, and even though it is controversial, I think we all have a lot to learn. I want to talk about the Palestinian and Israeli conflict in light of the Palestinian bid for statehood that occurred this week. I think it's something that needs to be discussed. I think it's something that's important. As I get started, I want to begin by saying that I feel very strongly that both the Jews and the Palestinians have a peaceful place where they can live, where they can pursue their hopes and their dreams, where their needs can be met, and where they can be secure, not having to worry about attack. I feel deeply for everyone involved on both ends of the debate, and I'm sure you do as well. With that being said, most of you have heard that this week the Palestinians applied for statehood with the United Nations. This is a huge development in all that's been happening in the Middle East. To understand what's happening in Israel, I feel that we need to understand the history and the history of the conflict between these two people groups. So let's start by talking about the Jewish people in that area of the world. Nobody would debate that the Jews have the most ancient historical roots of any people group in that area. Their historical existence in the present-day country of Israel goes back about 4,000 years at least. Most of those Jews were expelled by the Romans during the Roman occupation of that area. And since then, there have been pockets and small minorities of Jews that have lived in that area, but many other people groups have lived there as well. There has been a desire among those Jews that were expelled to return to their homeland ever since. And the modern Zionist movement, a movement for the return of the Jews to their ancestral homeland, began in the late 1800s. World War I saw the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and left much of present-day Israel controlled by the British between 1920 and 1948. When the British left in 1948 through a vote at the United Nations, and we'll actually discuss that more in a minute as well, they became a nation in 1948. Becoming a nation was very important at that time, not just for the hundreds of thousands of Jews already living in that area, but also for thousands of Jews that were left without any place to go after World War II. When the concentration camps were liberated, when the Nazis were defeated, many of the Jews that had been living in those concentration camps, against their will, of course, were not allowed to return to their homelands. They were stuck in these ghost town concentration camps, for the most part, without anywhere to go. So it became important to find them a homeland where they could return to. And so the most sensible solution was to allow them to return back to where the largest percentage of them were living at the time, which happened to be what is modern-day Israel. As soon as the nation became a nation in 1948, they were attacked by five Arab nations. This conflict began on May 15, 1948, and it is known as the Arab-Israeli War or the Israeli War for Independence. Those five Arab nations were Jordan, Syria, Egypt, Iraq, and Lebanon. During that war, Israel had a decisive victory where they were able to defend themselves and protect the country from this Arab invasion that happened as soon as they were formed. The next major conflict was the Six-Day War fought between June 5th and June 10th in 1967. Again, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Iraq began putting soldiers along Israel's borders 
and close the Straits of Tehran, which were deemed since 1957 to be a justification for war if those were closed, and they were, by the president of Egypt. So at that time, when the conditions of war were recognized, and when they were about to be invaded by countless hundreds of thousands of soldiers, Israel moved first, attacking the forces that were preparing to invade their country. The war was again a decisive victory for Israel, and they were able to defend themselves and take the West Bank from Jordan, Gaza from Egypt, and the Golan Heights from Syria. The three decades after the Six-Day War included skirmishes with Lebanon and the First Intifada, or Palestinian Uprising, and the modern peace process began in earnest in the 1990s. The Second Intifada began in 2000 and saw dramatically increasing Palestinian attacks on Israel. That aggression, the Second Intifada, led to the Gaza War of 2008. That is still fresh in many of our memories. Again, Israel won that decisively and actually, as we'll see in a moment, prevented a lot of future attacks as a result. The peace talks have stalled since then. Prime Minister Netanyahu has rejected peace talks based on the Palestinian precondition endorsed by Obama of returning to 1967 borders. Here's what Obama said about this. He said, quote, The borders of Israel and Palestine should be based on the 1967 lines with mutually agreed swaps so that secure and recognized borders are established for both states. The Palestinian people must have the right to govern themselves and reach their potential in a sovereign and contiguous state. A contiguous state would likely include a land bridge between Gaza and the West Bank, that's basically the definition of contiguous, which would split Israel into two separate areas, effectively sealing its defeat. Not a very good idea if you're Israel. Definitely something you're not going to agree to as a precondition of having peace talks. That would be absurd to say, we will give you everything you want, before the talks even begin. So it makes sense that Israel would say, we're not even going to have those peace talks if we have to agree to that before they even start. The 1967 borders would also leave Israel without its ancestral homeland capital, Jerusalem. Obama, to his credit, has stated his support for Israel keeping half of Jerusalem like they currently have. So all this has led to this week's events because Israel said they would not participate in the peace talks because of that precondition of returning to the 1967 borders. The Palestinians said, fine, we'll go ahead without you. We'll declare statehood with the United Nations. That's what happened this week. The Palestinians are attempting to circumvent the peace process and go straight to the UN in their bid for statehood. It is mostly a PR ploy, though, as this will have little effect on the ground. Here's a way to understand what is happening right now. It's kind of like this. Say your friend tells you, you owe me $100. And you tell your friend, that's crazy. I don't owe you $100. In fact, you owe me $100. So there's this squabble about who owes who $100. And then your friend comes and says to you, before we talk about it any further, let's start by you giving me the $100. And then we can talk about the rest of the situation. Well, of course, you're not going to agree to that because the whole debate hinges on that. Who owes the $100? So it'd be crazy to say, sure, I'll give you the $100. And then we'll debate who owes who $100. And so in this situation, the talks break down and your friend says, well, I'm going to go to a foreign court. So your friend comes back and says, well, this foreign court decided that you owe me $100. That's not probably going to have that much of an effect on how you respond. You probably aren't going to say, well, in that case, here's the $100. You'll say, no, this debate is between us. 
they aren't a part of it, so let's decide it between us. That's kind of what's happening here. It's more a PR ploy than anything. Israel likely is not going to recognize the UN vote on Palestinian statehood. They want there to be peace talks, and peace talks based on mutually agreeable steps, not a precondition of 1967 borders. So what's happening here this week is not at all necessarily going to have an instant effect on the ground. It will have a lot of effects in the future. A lot of those are hard to determine at this point. We're not sure what the result of this week is going to be. One thing for sure, it's probably going to boost the Palestinian cause in the world's perspective. Hence, it's a PR push. At the same time, it might further degrade peace talks. In any case, it is not a step that is likely to lead to more peace in Israel. Israel plans to protect its ancestral homeland with mutual agreements through peace talks being the proposed road to peace with the Palestinians. They're not going to just flatly accept whatever UN resolution develops. In Israel today, there are about 8 million people. 75% are Jewish, 20% are Arab, and the rest are undefined. The West Bank has an additional 2.4 million Palestinians. So we're talking over 10 million lives that are at stake right now in this process. It's definitely something worth getting right, and we should all be concerned with what's going on there. Israel makes up only 0.15% of the land of that part of the world. That is one-sixth of 1% of the land in that part of the world. So they do not have a lot of land to split up in the first place. Already we are talking one of the smallest countries on earth being further divided. Interestingly, a lot of the Arab propaganda about Israel calls them an expansionist state. It's hard to define a state as expansionist when they have less than one-sixth of one percent of the land in the area. They are the historical inhabitants of that small amount of land. They are trying to maintain their ancestral homeland. All other people groups that could claim earlier connections have been long lost to history. For example, the Canaanites and the Philistines. Israel is surrounded by 22 Arab nations that are hostile to them with 640 times more land, and many of them have stated goals of the destruction of Israel. Terrifying stuff. The first archaeological mention of the name Israel is from more than 3,000 years ago, from 1209 B.C. on the Merneptah Stella. There are archaeological Hebrew artifacts which have been found in Israel that date back more than 3,000 years. For example, there were two finds in 2009 which went back over 3,000 years and included Hebrew language written on them that were found in Israel. One of those, a jar with the inscription to Menachem in Hebrew, was uncovered in Jerusalem. And the other was found in the Kerbet Keafa near Israel's Allah Valley and included the earliest Hebrew writing ever discovered. So Israeli national identity dates back to as early as 1700 B.C., almost 4,000 years ago. And there have been many archaeological finds that support their ancestral claim to that part of the world. The first archaeological mention of the name Palestine, referring to the area, not the people group, is from the 5th century B.C. The Palestinian people are not a historical ethnic group, but rather the descendants of Christians and Jews who lived in the area before 700 A.D., and Arab refugees that happened to be in the area in 1948 when Israel became a nation. 
Palestinian national identity dates back to the early 20th century, and that was the first time that the Palestinians recognized themselves as a people group. So historically, the Jews have roots in Israel dating back almost 4,000 years, yet the Palestinians have a much more recent connection to that land. Some have lived there for a very long time, of course. Others were modern refugees. But as a people group, they did not even recognize themselves as such until about a century ago. That being stated, even though Israel is the ancestral homeland of the Jews, the Palestinians have a right to exist also. This is not a one-sided argument. There are four million Palestinians in Israel, and they deserve peace, structure, stability, and economic viability as well as the Israelis. They both have a right to exist. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR 91.9 and 93.9 FM and KDUR.org online. We're talking about the Palestinian bid for statehood in the U.N. this week. With everything that's been stated, I think a lot of times the modern conception is that Israel is the aggressor. And I think it's important to realize a lot of the aggression from the Palestinians towards Israel as well. Currently, Iran and other countries are supplying Hamas and the Palestinians with weapons. The Palestinians have launched more than 10,000 rockets and mortars into Israel over the last decade. That's an average of about 1,000 a year or about three each day. Imagine any other country in the world being attacked with missiles on average three times a day for a decade, showing the amount of restraint that Israel has shown. It's pretty phenomenal. Of those 10,000 attacks, and that's not even including suicide bombs and other attacks, including attacks on school buses and things like that, of those, 4,000 came between 2007 and 2008. There were about 1,639 in 07, and over 3,000 rocket attacks in 2008. That's what led up to the Gaza War. So I've heard it said that the Gaza War was unprovoked. It was just Israeli aggression against the Palestinians. Truth be told, in 2008, leading up to that war, there was an average of 10 missile attacks a day on Israelis from Palestinians. Any country on earth receiving 10 missile attacks a day would fight back. And that's what resulted in the Gaza War, whose stated purpose was to stop those rocket and mortar attacks. And it accomplished that goal. Literally, there were 566 attacks in 2009. 406 of those came during the first three weeks of January before the war concluded. So after the war concluded, the first year after that in 2009, there were only 160 rocket attacks on Israel. Compare that to the year before when there were 3,000. So there was basically a 95% reduction in rocket attacks on Israel after the war. So the goal of the Gaza war to stop those rocket attacks was achieved. The following year, in 2010, there were about 365 attacks. So again, inching upward as countries like Iran supply more missiles to the Palestinians. And so far this year, there have been over 525 attacks as of this September. So again, we're seeing that these rocket attacks continue to skyrocket. And in fact, again this year, they are approaching close to two rocket attacks a day on innocent Israeli citizens Israel has shown tremendous restraint. What other country would tolerate an average of 1,000 rocket attacks each year with such restraint? Here are some examples of why Israel has shown restraint. All of their citizens have military training and are armed, yet peaceful towards their Palestinian neighbors. I'm talking about individuals, not the government here. But those citizens are armed and have military training, yet are not using that in a violent way against their neighbors. 
Israel's military is technologically far superior to the Palestinians, and instead of using that for large-scale attack, they use it for pinpoint attacks on terror leaders. Israel has nukes, of course, we all know that, but they've never used them, and that's phenomenal. If you had a weapon of that magnitude and were being attacked the way they are, yet showed the restraint and chose not to use those weapons, that shows a lot of desire for peace. Ultimately, Israel's wars have all been defensive wars, not offensive wars, in which they responded to aggression rather than initiating aggression. But they still get a bad rap, it seems, no matter what they do. For example, the Gaza flotilla raid on May 30th of 2010, there was a flotilla of six different ships coming into their waters, and Israeli IDF forces asked the six boats to go to port where they could be searched for ammunition and for missiles because a lot of those are being imported from countries like Iran. But the flotilla kept going forward without allowing IDF forces to determine what they were carrying. So you can only assume that they are carrying something bad if they will not allow you to check what you have. So the IDF went ahead and boarded that flotilla to see what they were carrying. Are they carrying missiles or humanitarian aid? Turns out they were carrying humanitarian aid. But who would have known that without an inspection? Upon boarding the first ship, the IDF forces were attacked by militant terrorists that had planned to draw them into attack, that had planned to initiate the attack so that Israel and their forces would respond violently in a way that would cause an international scene. A lot of those people actually that initiated the attack that were on the flotilla had even left letters and videos to their loved ones telling them goodbye and saying that they were going to die as martyrs. So they intended from the start, they had planned, and there's videos of them planning and rehearsing their attack on IDF soldiers that were soon to board the ships. They knew that this was going to happen. They drew them into a fight. And then when Israel responded with force, they became the brunt of a lot of international criticism. The UN, about a year later, actually after studying all sides of the issue, came to the conclusion that Israel's actions were legal, but Israel still lost the PR battle in it all. So these threats against Israel are existential threats. Those have been magnified by the Arab Spring. Compromised border security is a reality now, whereas before they had peace treaties with Jordan and Egypt that were right up against their borders. Now those peace treaties are in jeopardy, literally, especially those with Egypt. And the border with Egypt, even though it's been secure since 67 via peace treaty, is now no longer secure. Another result of the Arab Spring is lost allies. Both Egypt and Turkey have rejected their ties to Israel, and even the United States is supporting Israel a lot less than we have traditionally, and Obama has been Israel's least supportive U.S. president. Anti-Semitism is on the rise globally again, and we cannot let a repeat of the Holocaust happened. We have got to reverse that trend and avoid repeating history by supporting Israel's right to exist now. Somehow, Israel's right to exist must also be balanced with the Palestinians' right to exist, though. This is a very complex issue. As we talk about this, it's important to highlight that much of what is going on is happening according to biblical prophecy. The Bible tells us in Leviticus 26.44 that even though the Jews would be dispersed around the world, they would never lose their identity. It also says that they would return to their own land in Ezekiel 34. It tells us in Isaiah 66, verses 7 through 11, that Israel would be 
born again as a nation and that that would happen in a day. That happened, not just the being born again as a nation, but the reality that it would happen in a day was realized in 1948 by UN declaration prophesied in scripture 4,000 years prior to that. The return of the Hebrew language, even though it had been lost and was basically a dead language for millennia, Zephaniah 3.9 prophesied that the Hebrew language would be returned in these days. And again, that has been a reality since 1948. Although once considered a dead language, it is today the language of Israel. There are also other prophecies in Scripture that are very interesting. The return of Jews from countries around the world is also a fulfillment of prophecy. Scripture tells us that Jews would return from Russia, from Ethiopia, from other countries to their ancestral homeland. That is something that has first been realized in the last century. And the alliances being formed between Israel's enemies, including Iran, Russia, Sudan, Libya, Algeria, and Turkey, are also prophesied in Scripture. This is phenomenal that countries like Iran and Russia, which today are collaborating, for example, Russia is collaborating heavily with Iran on developing nuclear weapons, that alliance, that relationship between those two countries was prophesied in Scripture. You could find a lot more about prophecy that's unfolding before our very eyes on Joel Rosenberg's blog, flashtrafficblog.wordpress.com. Again, that's flashtrafficblog.wordpress.com. It's very interesting stuff. And if you're interested in what's coming, I get asked all the time, what should we expect? What's coming? What's next? What does the Bible say about the end times? Well, my answer is read the Bible. Check it out for yourself and see what it says to expect. It's extremely interesting stuff. Anyway, so what about the Palestinians? We've been talking about Israel's right to exist, and I mentioned that the Palestinians also have a right to exist, and I want to go into that some more because it's important. Four million people need peace, security, and economic stability, and somehow Israel has to accommodate those needs while protecting its own needs. We have a few personal connections to the Palestinians. First of all, there are many more Christians in the Palestinian regions than there are in Israel. That's very interesting. In some places, as many as 10% of the Palestinians are Christians. And as fellow Christians, at least talking from the perspective of the host myself, I see it very important to protect those people and everybody that they're related to, including all the different Palestinians in their areas. We want peace and security and economic provision for those people. My wife and I also sponsor a Palestinian boy named Mohammed, and we desire peace and security and an economically viable future for Muhammad. We love him. We pray for him daily. We desire a positive future for him, free of worry, free of fear, free of stress, and we desire that for the boy that we sponsor in that area. We also want those same things for everybody he's related to, for his neighbors, for his fellow Palestinians, as much as we want them for anyone. And somehow, our desire is that those would be achieved in a way that grants those same things to their neighbors, Israel. The situation seems so dire. Involvement by terrorist states like Iran and organizations like Hamas are not helping the peace process. Israel's security must be balanced with anything they give up. As they make concessions, as they give up land, as they give up whatever to the peace process, their own security has to be guaranteed in the process as well. Again, to them, this is an existential threat. So what will be the fallout of this week's UN-Palestinian statehood bid? All sides agree that very little will change on the ground. This is not a step towards peace at all. If anything, this is a step towards more hostilities. 
The Palestinian bid for statehood in the UN is not creating a situation where Israel will be more willing to enter those peace talks, but rather one in which they'll be less willing to enter those peace talks. It's creating a lot less potential for peace than there currently is, and that is something that we do not need. At the same time, somehow they do need to achieve that statehood. It seems the person with the most to lose in this situation is Obama. No matter how he responds, he will likely be criticized. And on that note, I want to encourage you to pray for Obama, especially if you're a believer. The Bible tells us to pray for our leaders, and I think we should all be praying for him that he would make wise decisions in this very hard time. So what's really happening? Who's right or wrong? Etc., etc. Those questions are hard to answer, if not impossible. I think it all boils down to two words, human nature. In the form of conflict, selfishness, animosity, racism, bigotry, hate, unforgiveness, and violence, that is on display. Human nature is on display for the world to see. And I am convinced that only Jesus offers the solution that can change humans from the inside out, making a way for true peace based on authentic love. See, all of us are sinful by nature. The Bible says that none of us are without sin. And our sin nature, our own selfishness, causes us not only to reject God, but to reject others and to fight others and to live selfishly rather than loving our neighbor as ourself. My hope is that all sides would follow Jesus' commands. Jesus' command, for example, to love our neighbors as ourselves in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine. What if both sides decided to love each other as themselves? Or what about Jesus' command in Matthew 5, 4, to love our enemies and to pray for them? What if both sides would decide to love each other and to pray for each other, even their enemies? Or finally, what about the golden rule that Jesus spoke in John seven twelve to do unto others as you would want them to do unto you? What if each country was saying we will only act towards each other in ways that we would want the other to act towards us? That would truly solve the situation that is currently happening in Israel, is if all the people there would begin to love each other as themselves, to love their enemies and to pray for them, and to do only to each other what they wanted done to themselves. All that, though, begins, again, with this relationship with Christ, allowing Jesus to come in to our lives and to change us from the inside out. That is the core issue. It's our human nature. It's our sin. And that is why the gospel is so relevant in this situation. Jesus came, he died on the cross, and he paid for all of our sin so that whoever trusts in him will be forgiven and adopted into his family. And at that point, Scripture says, God puts his Holy Spirit in us to change us from the inside out, to produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. If we want to see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control in the Middle East, in Israel, it all starts with Jesus the only answer to man's problems. I would encourage you today, if you've never personally taken that step to put your trust in Christ, to open the door of your life to him, to allow him to come in, to begin a relationship with him, you can do that right now through prayer, simply by asking him to come into your life and to forgive your sins and to make you who he wants you to be. I truly believe he is the only solution for this situation. Now, what about us? What can we do? This is a polarizing debate and there are different people on every end of the spectrum but what can we do on our end if you're like me you might feel like your hands are tied but they really are not there are ways that you can be involved 
One way that my wife and I help, I mentioned it a minute ago, is by financially supporting a Palestinian boy through World Vision. I would encourage you to do the same. You can go to worldvision.org and you can click that region of the world and find a way that you can financially support some of the poor Palestinian children that desperately need food, clothing, shelter, medicine, and education. I would encourage you to support the Palestinians that way. I would also encourage you to stand with Israel as they face an existential threat from many hostile neighbors. Fundamentally, the best way that we can be a part of the solution is to pray for our leaders and theirs. That's what scripture tells us to do, to pray for our leaders, the leaders that are making these hard decisions. We need to be praying for them, to be praying for Israel and to be praying for the Palestinians. It's been an interesting discussion. If you're a college student, I would like to invite you to Connect. Connect is a non-denominational group of Christian believers here on campus that simply seeks to grow in our walks with God. We'll be meeting in the Student Life Center at 7.30 p.m. on Tuesday, and I hope to see you there. I would also like to invite you to a church this week. If you'd like to find a place where you can plug in and grow as a part of a thriving, loving community, Grace Church would be a great place to check out. They meet at 1440 Florida Road at 1045 this morning. I hope you'll give them a shot. And if you do, tell Keith and Justin and Bob that we say hi. Get all of our previous shows at eternityimpact.blogspot.com and please let us know what you think. We appreciate your comments and questions. Thanks again so much for listening today. Please keep praying for the Middle East and for peace in that area and have a great Sunday.